0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 29, 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to pick up our study today in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is essentially, I think, the world's most famous story about a shepherd boy, David, fighting, defeating the giant Philistine warrior, Goliath. And while the story itself is so memorable and legendary and universal and even the term, a battle of David and Goliath, has been borrowed and used to mean a confrontation between a, a heavy underdog against a seemingly invincible opponent, we need to stay focused and to continue to examine this story in the proper spiritual context. And that context is that the first king of Israel, Saul, has been deposed by God and a new king, David, has been anointed. Saul no longer has the Holy Spirit available to him and in fact is now permanently infected with a spirit that causes evil. David, though, has been given the Holy Spirit that one time fell upon Saul. So he's now flush with God's immutable power and wisdom and enlightenment. The question for us, as interested readers, is this. Will David follow that spirit and submit to God's authority? Or will he do as Saul and succumb to temptation and attempt to rule under a different authority. Now while David versus Goliath is a battle of God's people against heathen Gentiles, it's not the only battle that this section of 1 Samuel is dealing with. David versus Saul is another pivotal confrontation. And it concerns the matter of God's righteous king versus the anti-king who, as of now, is illegitimately occupying the throne and he's attempting to hang on to it with all his might against God's will because he wants to rule over God's kingdom. And so we can take an important Perhaps surprising observation from this scenario. King Shaul shows us that the person who displays the spirit of the anti-king is not necessarily limited to ethnic Gentiles. This is something we need to keep in mind as we muse and speculate in our modern era, about just who the anti-king, the anti-Christ as we call it, that is soon to appear on the world stage, just might turn out to be. Let that sink in a little bit. Now to set the stage for today's lesson, we need to recognize that from a historical and spiritual perspective, God has all along, been preparing his people for a king. Man's nature is such that we cannot live righteous and moral lives without a king. Humans need a strong and authoritative hand to guide us as individuals and as nations. The Bible shows us that we'll still need that strong hand totally intolerant of rebellion even into the thousand year reign of Messiah. If we but lived in proper spiritual harmony with the Father, the Heavenly King, we wouldn't require an earthly one as his agent. But that's not nearly the case, is it? As with all things, God's will and timing must reign supreme. Otherwise, something that on the surface seems so right and good to our minds becomes sin. It was God's will for Israel to eventually have a king, but it wasn't God's timing for Israel to have a king at that moment when the leaders of Israel demanded that the great judge and prophet Samuel step down and turn his God-ordained leadership over to a monarch that they found suitable. Mm -hmm. The time for a king was indeed coming, and with God's blessing. But that time was not yet. It was not the divine time when Samuel was confronted with these rebels. But the people weren't seeking the Lord's timing, were they? They were impatient. They wanted the king now. They wanted a king that fit their notion of a king, an earthly king. Tall, handsome, charismatic, physically strong, great speaker, self-willed. The kind of king that generally ruled over all the Gentile nations of the earth. The Lord gave Israel's leaders the desire of their hearts. Not as a blessing, but as a curse. God gave them Saul of Benjamin as their premature king. It was because the people had the wrong attitude that they would wind up with the wrong man at the wrong time. A man with the wrong attributes even from the wrong tribe. But in 1 Samuel 17 a corner has been turned. In Bethlehem of Judah a new king was anointed. David possessed the attributes that God demands of a righteous king. This new king was anointed in God's timing. He was the right king at the right time with the right character traits, possessing the right attitude towards the Lord and he was from the right tribe, Judah. After Saul was used by the Lord to demonstrate what the wrong king for the for God's kingdom look like, he would now give them the right king so that they and we could see the very stark difference and learn from it. There's so many lessons in this for us to heed. One is that history progresses and that this progression is God's will. Times and circumstances and cultures change and evolve, adhering to a never ending pattern, but God never goes backwards. God did not decide with David to undo the administration of his kingdom by means of a monarchy and then go back to the administration of his kingdom by means of judges. He didn't try to roll back time and reinstitute older and more primitive ways of civilization, which is what Islam is forever trying to do. Because even as time moves forward and as societies change and advance, God's laws and principles stand immutable, immovable. Our obligation then is, as Solomon stated In the book of Ecclesiastes, in 12.13, he says, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep His commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. It matters not what age we live in, what particular spot on earth we might reside. As His redeemed it's only for us to scrupulously follow the ancient written word of God as led by the timeless Holy Spirit of God in order to properly apply these God principles to whatever contemporary stage of history that we occupy. From David's day forward, as ordained by divine fiat, Israel was to be ruled by a king you know our own eternal future is as members of a kingdom where god is the ultimate monarch Amen. it will be a spiritual kingdom retaining some semblance of physical attributes ruled over by the resurrected and soon to return god man king yeshua as a mysterious combination of God and God's agent. Yet this tangible and real kingdom of perfection and wholeness will exist on planet Earth. David is the precursor of the type of righteous king who will rule over us, the Lord's saved, forever. Let's continue our story of David and Goliath. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and we're going to begin with verse 17. Read to the end. 1 Samuel 17, 17. 3.16 in the complete Jewish Bible. That's what you're using. Yishai said to David, his son, please take your brothers five bushels of this roasted grain and ten loaves of bread and hurry. Carry them to your brothers at the camp and bring these ten cheeses to their field officer. Find out if your brothers are well and bring back some token from them. Shaul and your brothers with all the army of Israel are in the Elah Valley fighting fighting the uh, Pulishtim. David got up early in the morning, he left the sheep with a helper, took his load set out as Jesse had ordered him and he arrived at the barricade of the camp just as the troops were going out to their battle stations and shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Pilishtim had set up their battle lines facing each other. David left his equipment in charge of the equipment guard. He ran to the troops, went to his brothers and asked if they were well. And as he was talking to them, there came the champion, the Pilishti from Gat named Goliath, From the ranks of the Pilistim, saying the same words as before. And David heard them. And when the soldiers from Israel saw the man, they all ran away from him, terrified. The soldiers from Israel said to each other, You saw that man who just came up? I mean, he's come to challenge Israel to whoever kills him. The king's going to give a rich reward. He'll also give him his daughter, exempt his father's family from all the services and taxes in Israel. And David said to the man standing with him, What reward will be given to the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyway that challenges the armies of the living God? The people answered with what they had been saying, adding, That's what will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men and it made Eliab angry with him. And he asked, why did you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You just came down here to watch the fighting. David said, what have I done now? I've only asked a question. he turned away from him to someone else and asked the same question and the people gave him the same answer. Well, David's words were overheard, told to Saul, who summoned him. And David said to Saul, No one should lose heart because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You can't go to fight this Philistine. You're just a boy. And he's been a warrior from his youth. And David answered Saul, Your servant used to guard his father's sheep. When a bear or a lion would come and grab a lamb from the flock, I'd go after it, I'd hit it and I'd snatch the lamb from its mouth. If it turned on me, I'd catch it by the jaw, smack it, and kill it. Your servants defeated both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he's challenged the armies of the living God. And then David said, Adonai, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the paw of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go. May I be with you. Saul dressed David in his own armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head gave him an armor plate to wear. David buckled his sword on his armor. He tried to walk, but he wasn't used to such equipment. And David said to Saul, I can't move wearing these things because I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Then he took his stick in his hand, he picked up five smooth stones from the riverbed, putting them in his shepherd's bag, in his pouch. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now the Philistine, with his shield bearer ahead of him came nearer and nearer to David, and the Pilishti looked David up and down. He had nothing but scorn for what he saw. A boy with ruddy cheeks, red hair, good looks. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Is that why you're coming at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. And the Philistine said to David, Come here to me, so I can give your flesh to the birds and the air and the wild animals. And David answered the Philistine, You're coming at me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I'm coming at you in the name of Adonai Savot, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have challenged. Today Adonai will hand you over to me, I will attack you, lop your head off and give the carcasses of the army of the Philistines to the birds in the air and the animals in the land. Then all the land will know that there is a God in Israel and everyone assembled here will know that Adonai does not save by sword or spear. For this is Adonai's battle he will hand you over to us. And when the Philistine got up and came close to meet David David hurried, he ran toward the army to meet the Philistine David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and he hurled it with his sling it struck the Philistine in his forehead, buried itself in his forehead so that he fell face down on the ground thus David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone striking the Philistine and killing him but David had no sword in his hand Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and finished killing him, cutting off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah got up shouting and they pursued the Philistines all the way to Gath, the gates of Ekron. The wounded Philistines fell down all along the road from Sha'arayim to Gath and Ekron. After chasing the Philistines, the army of Israel returned and plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine, he brought it to Jerusalem. but he put the armor of the Philistine in his tent. And when Saul saw David go out to fight the Philistine, he said to Abner, the army's commander, Abner, whose son is this boy? By your life, O king, Abner replied, I don't know. And the king said, find out whose son this boy is. As David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him. He brought him to Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul asked him, Young man, whose son are you? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Yeshai, the Beit Lachmi. Jesse of Bethlehem. The giant Philistine warrior, Goliath, challenged these terrified Israelites to single combat day after day for 40 days but not one of Israel's fighters had the courage to face his fears and take up the cause of God's kingdom the 40 days is not only a literal number uh, it's a very consistent biblical pattern that speaks of a time of trial, of testing that's invariably followed by either divine chastisement or deliverance. This is our clue that what is transpiring here is not simply another of the endless battles between the armies of men but rather it's God-ordained It's a God-orchestrated event with a godly purpose. The Philistines were attempting to control the the, the natural superhighway of the Valley of Elah that connected Philistia with the hill country of Judah. If they succeeded they would have an easy flow of troops and supplies that would enable them to subdue the southern region of the Promised Land. Saul watched from a safe distance. His top general, Abner, directing the Hebrew troops that were comprised of a militia of men contributed by each of the Israelite tribes. Jesse of Bethlehem, father of David, had sent his three oldest sons to join the war effort as representatives of the family. But after all this time had passed, he was now starting to get concerned for his sons, so he sent David to gather a report. And verse 16 once again explains that David was the family shepherd, a vocation that apparently suited him. So when David... Father decides to send him to inquire about his brothers. David first has to put one of his helpers in charge of the flock. And in hindsight, that can only be obtained, by the way, after the coming of Messiah. We can now see this wonderful prophetic picture here of a faithful son who was the earthly king watching over not his. But his father's sheep. But because another battle has to be fought and won, the shepherd must leave for a time, but not without equipping and entrusting a faithful helper to care for his sheep while he's gone for a little while. Isn't that a great picture? David loads up with food to take with him because. Israel had no standing professional army. They had no army, no military infrastructure, no supply depot. So each soldier was charged with bringing his own weapons, even supplying his own personal food. Verse 20 says, He got up early in the morning to set out for the Elah Valley. When this rather innocuous phrase, got up early in the morning, is used in the Bible... It's not just to add color to the story. It's a a phrase that means this person was anxious to obey and get on with the assigned task. David arrives just as the Israelite troops were again taking up their posts for yet another day of what had become a, a standoff between these two opposing forces. After checking in with the soldier, that was in charge of the equipment David runs to check on his brother's welfare like his father told him. And as he's talking with them out comes Goliath to shout his insults and challenge to to the Israeli army and David watches with interest as the men of Israel don't move a muscle to respond. But he also overhears a discussion whereby the men are saying that King Saul will greatly reward that man who will go out there and kill Goliath by giving that man his own daughter and by exempting that man's entire family from ever again having to pay taxes or supplying labor or materials to the kingdom. David can hardly believe his ears. All someone has to do is go out and kill this one man and then he can go marry into the royal family and his entire family will have no more burdensome financial or military obligations to the monarchy. By now he's wondering why men aren't lining up to take advantage of this incredible offer in his youthful exuberance, he asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyway? Now, Uncircumcised is meant to be an insult, by the way. Okay, He's essentially calling him a Gentile. All right? But the point is, that this Philistine was not one of God's people. Goliath was not of the chosen race. And here he was challenging God's army. This was incomprehensible to David that such a man would be allowed to babble on like this in such a blasphemous manner. And not one Israelite, not one person from God's kingdom would stand up to him so when David keeps on asking questions about this situation, it starts to annoy his oldest brother, Eliof. I mean, David's a mere youth, a shepherd of all things. He's just arrived here with supplies for the real fighting men. He hasn't been stuck out here for the past several weeks. He bears no sword or spear. He hasn't been assigned to do battle. So Eliab responds to David's bravado the way most older brothers would. He tells him to shut up. He has no idea what he's talking about. Eliab tells him that it's one thing to come down here and be a spectator. It's quite another to participate in battle and put your own life on the line. That doesn't deter David. He just goes on and asks somebody else about what King Saul promised, obviously trying to verify if what he's hearing is just a soldier's rumor or if this offer is real. Well, when it was becoming clear that David was seriously contemplating going out to fight Goliath, some unidentified person went to King Saul and he told him about this. And Saul summons David, and David told the king that it was making no sense for this thing to keep going on and on, day after day. And that David intended to fight this giant warrior himself and put an end to it. Well, one can only imagine King Saul's impulsive amusement at such a thought. David was young. He'd spent his entire life as a shepherd. He was standing there before the king in shepherd's garments. To go out and confront this enormous Philistine who'd been trained up as a warrior since he was a child was foolhardy to the extreme. Now, Saul wasn't really worried about some shepherd boy going out and getting himself killed, Saul was concerned that he would look foolish by sending this fellow out there who obviously wasn't a trained soldier. Besides, the way this thing worked, you see, was that it was the king that decided who he would send out as Israel's representative warrior. Because let me tell you, the consequences of that decision were immense. Recall the deal that Goliath had proposed. It was that if the king of Israel agreed to settle this matter by single combat, then the losing side would simply lay down their arms and submit to the victor. If Goliath won an outcome that sure seemed certain, then King Saul and all his men would be agreeing to become voluntary vassals of the Philistines, which is what the Philistines wanted all along. The upside, however unlikely, was that if a man from Israel happened to win, then the Philistines would submit to Israel. And Saul's reputation as a great warrior king would spread all over the region. One battle between two men for all the marbles. Well, when Saul said that David had no experience in combat David responded that he'd fought off lions and bears many times that as a shepherd it was his job it was his job to put his life on the line for his sheep to protect them from whatever fierce creature might assume to come and prey on his flock By the way Lions and bears were common in that day in Canaan. This has been validated in the region not only in written inscriptions but in hundreds of pictographs of men hunting bears and killing lions. Now you know, one can almost see the gears turning in Saul's mind as he and David conversed. Saul was caught in a vice. Things were not going well for Saul. Saul. At his calling, the militia had been mustered to this place to fight the Philistines. Yet not an arrow had been shot in anger in the month and a half or more since those men had arrived. It was a deadlock. And while the professional and well-supplied Philistine army could be forced to remain there indefinitely, Saul's militia couldn't. Soon the men would just grow weary of all this and leave I mean, the Philistines, I mean, rather the Hebrews, had herds to maintain, fields and crops to attend to. They had trades to ply, grapevines to prune. To simply sit there, day without end, in those hills above the valley plain and listen to Goliath yelling insults at them, it had its limits. Saul knew this. It was painfully obvious by now that none of the men who had come ostensibly to fight were ever going to lay their life on the line for the sake of king and kingdom by facing that guy, facing Goliath. Now those who had experience in battle determined that they had no chance. They weren't about to waste their life for nothing. But their in the language of youthful naivete was a kind of reminder to Saul of another time. A voice of strength was coming from that shepherd who stood before the king of Israel. A voice that was based on simple faith and not the bitter pragmatism that comes with the disappointments of life and from the sadness of a failed leadership, and from being abandoned by the God of Israel. It was hope. It was hope that Saul was hearing, and he was feeling it. And he hadn't experienced that motion in a long time. Besides, says David, you know, this isn't really about the two biggest kids on the block having a disagreement. This is about some pagan Gentiles with all their false gods daring to challenge God's army and by extension, God. This can't be allowed to stand. And if Saul will but respond, this will be over in a heartbeat. What David actually says is that Israel's army is the hosts of Elohim Chaim, the hosts of the living God. While we today hear the term living God and think of it mostly as but one of the many poetic but properly pious titles for the Lord, in fact, to the Hebrews it had a very important meaning. It meant that as compared to other gods... Yehoveh was an active participant in the lives of men. He directed the affairs of humans. The Lord determined outcomes. He personally balanced the scales of justice according to his will. Now Saul, knowing that from a rational point of view there really is no other choice here agrees to allow David to go forth as Israel's champion and to battle Goliath. But of course, since Saul's throne and his kingdom were on the line, Saul wanted David to have whatever advantage might be available for him, so he offers to dress David in his personal armor. Which, let's face it, was just over there gathering dust anyway. At least David would go into combat Wearing regal armor and thus provide a more suitable and less embarrassing appearance that both sides actually expected to see anyway. David reluctantly puts on the king's bronze paraphernalia but it doesn't feel right to him. It's so cumbersome he can't even move in it. I'm not used to them, he says. You know, David isn't speaking in lofty or veiled spiritual terms. What he's saying was literally so. Saul, recall, was a very tall man. David was just an average-sized Hebrew, so it definitely didn't fit. And armor was heavy and cumbersome and it only helped if the battle tactics one used were actually designed for use with armor. But unknown to David... At the time he was demonstrating and speaking actually a God principle when he said those words with a deeply rich lesson for God's church as a whole and for individual believers to hear and obey. And I think that Alfred Edersham, that great Messianic Jew who lived and wrote one and a half centuries ago said it so very eloquently. He said this, The first demand upon us is to be spiritual. The next is to be genuine and true, without seeking to clothe ourselves in the armor of another. Let me paraphrase his marvelous statement. Why would the redeemed of God employ the strength of the world in a spiritual battle? Why would a believer, or the institution that purports to be the earthly authority and organization of the kingdom of God, rely on the means and methods that the world relies upon to conduct its business? Why would God's righteous king don the armor of the anti-king? It's not that David was about to enter this battle unarmed. It's just that his weapon was to be what he knew how to use, but it also reflected who he was. His was the standard weapon of a shepherd, which he was. Not a warrior king, which he wasn't, at least not yet. Messiah reflected this same God principle when he came to us first as a shepherd. And so he used the means of a shepherd, self sacrifice, to accomplish the Father's redempted will. But he's going to come later as a warrior king. And at that time, he's going to use the means of a warrior king armed destruction with an army to further accomplish the father's redemptive will. Well, the story now starts to move very quickly. David takes off the armor, he picks up his shepherd's staff, here it's called a stick, and in the riverbed that runs through the Elah Valley floor he picks up five smooth stones to use with his sling. Note that this sling is no child's toy. It was a very respected weapon of that era. Armies often employed entire divisions of stone slingers as a deadly and effective tactic. According to Judges 20.16, there was a division of 700 left-handed stone slingers from the tribe of Benjamin each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss it, it says. So they're pretty accurate. Goliath was out in the open when he spied David, walking walking briskly towards him, shepherd's weapon in his hand. Now whereas King Saul was immediately amused at the sight of David, Goliath was incredulous. Whereas King Saul... Was trying to figure out what to do with David. Goliath was figuring out how to kill him. But I mean, what was this? A joke? Goliath looks David over and he sees a youth, in Hebrew, a Ne'ar, with fine, youthful features. Goliath had expected a, a grizzled and scarred warrior to come out and face him. It said that David had ruddy cheeks, red hair, good looks. Interestingly, David had a similar hair, sc- hair color and skin tone as Esau. Which is why Esau was given the name of Edom, which means red. This wasn't common. The average Hebrew typically bore dark olive skin, dark brown or ink black hair. So even though David wasn't physically imposing, he was boyishly Handsome in a a refined kind of way. Goliath was insulted. He was infuriated. This boy didn't represent an honorable challenge. He cursed David, invoking his God, and promised to feed him to the birds. In other words, he wasn't going to allow David a proper burial. This was a, a great horror to the ancient world's mindset. Now just as we've been given a sharp contrast between the old king, Saul, the anti-king, and the new king, David, the righteous king, so now we have another contrast by the means of war between Goliath and David. David says, you come at me with typical weapons, but I come at you in the name of Jehovah." Goliath came dressed for an earthly battle. He didn't realize that he wasn't properly attired for a spiritual confrontation with God. And then David further aggravates the great Philistine giant by saying that in a few moments David's going to attack him, cut his head off, and give the dead bodies of the Philistine army to those same birds that Goliath threatened to feed David. David shows that his main concern is for Jehovah's reputation. Thus, when this youngish, small, Hebrew shepherd kills this giant enemy warrior, says, "Everyone present will now know, without doubt, that the God of Israel is present and powerful." Now, stop there for a moment. While we take this passage to mean that there actually is a God of Israel named Yehovah, that's not what this meant to David or to Goliath. In other words, while in a modern world where atheism and secular humanism are sweeping the globe, it might appear to us that the issue in this passage is actually whether or not there is such a thing as God. But here it has to do with the territoriality traditions concerning gods. See, throughout the Biblical era and especially so the Old Testament pagans and Hebrews alike believed that that there were many gods. The Hebrews were not really monotheistic, rather they believed that while other nations had their gods and goddesses, usually several, Israel had only one God Jehovah. Now in some ways this made Israel a laughing stock. They were seen by the Gentiles as such a poor and lowly people they could only afford one God when all the other nations had as many as a dozen or more. Since each nation had their own gods, it was believed that the gods were bound by that nation's particular territory. If one god was more powerful than another, then perhaps that god's people could drive another people out of their territory and thus the victorious god would take over some other god's territory. See, that's what was going on here. That was the thought process. Now recall that this battle is taking place where? in Canaan, in Judah's territory. One would expect the God of Israel to be firmly entrenched in his territory, Judah. But since the Philistines were here and since they were definitely seen as the more powerful and able force, the Hebrew soldiers weren't at all sure that Jehovah was still there while the Philistines were we're quite sure that Dagan had usurped Jehovah, God of Israel. Thus, we're about to get what is actually a familiar demonstration that's going to set the record straight, says David. So, David loads a stone into a sling, gives it a couple of Swings to gain acceleration, he zips that small projectile towards the unprotected part of Goliath's body, his face. it strikes him in the forehead, knocking him unconscious, and Goliath falls with a mighty thud. And for some reason, for some reason we're giving we're given the information that Goliath fell face down before David. Let me explain the significance of that to you. What we have is a pattern and this event corresponds to a much earlier one. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're just going to read the first four verses. This will spark a memory quickly, I think. First Samuel, chapter 5, page 303 in the complete Jewish Bible. The Philistines had captured the Ark of God and they brought it from Eben-Ezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the temple of Dagon, set it next to dagon but early the next morning when the people of Ashdod got there, uh, got up, there was Dagon fallen down with his face to the ground before the Ark of Adonai. They took Dagon and set him up in his place again, but early the following morning when they got up, Dagon was again fallen down with his face to the ground before the Ark of Adonai, but this time the head of Dagon and both his hands lay there severed on the threshold all that was left of Dagon was his torso this is why to this day the priests of Dagon and those entering his temple never walk on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod note how the statue of Dagon, the Philistine god falls face down before the presence of Jehovah which of course is the Ark of the Covenant And then the head falls off. Here in chapter 17, we have Dagon's great Philistine warrior, Goliath, fall face down before the presence of Jehovah, the Holy Spirit upon David. David is God's earthly agent. And then Goliath's head is removed. Falling face down is to fall prostrate. It's a position of submission. The idol of Dagon fell face down in submission to the God of Israel and now the giant Goliath falls face down in submission to the God of Israel. This meaning was not at all lost on either side. The Philistines panicked because they realized their God couldn't save them and the Hebrews now knew as as David told Goliath they would learn in verses 46 and 47 that Israel's God is still here he is active he is fighting for his people now I find it interesting that we're told that the Philistines fled why is that so interesting? because that wasn't the deal that their great champion Goliath had proposed. The deal was that whichever side lost would do what? They'd throw down their weapons and submit to the winning side. Instead, the Philistines reneged and they took off for home. They ran for Gath and Ikron, two cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. Many Philistine soldiers were chased down and killed and when the Israelites had ventured far enough into Philistine territory to accomplish that slaughter and make their point, they turned around and plundered the camping area at the, uh, of the Philistine army at the Valley of Elah. David took Goliath's head and his armor as a prize. We're told that he put Goliath's armor in his tent, but we need to understand that the term tent here didn't mean an animal skin shelter set up there at Elah. Rather, tent is an often used biblical euphemism that simply means the family abode. Then we're told that he took Goliath's head and deposited it at Jerusalem. Now there's all kinds of interesting issues with taking Goliath's head there and we're going to examine some of that next week. But for now, just let me end today by pointing out that modern Israel is in desperate need of a modern David. And as I put this lesson together, my mind overflowed with mental pictures as my eyes filled with tears as I thought about how Israel of today is behaving and thinking exactly as Saul and his militia thought and how the Palestinians, which by the way is just Greek for Philistines, is acting in concert with their Arab and Muslim neighbors and now Western Europe and to some degree the United States government as Goliath, who stands arrogantly and fearlessly to threaten God's people. Oh, what a mistake hundreds of millions, perhaps a billion people are ready to dismantle Israel and annihilate the Jewish people. Do as we say, give up land or be wiped out. That's your choice. Together, the combined armies and treasuries of these Gentile nations are overwhelming And the Israeli government and much if not most of the Jewish population looks upon those Gentile governments and their forces and they they think, what earthly possibility is there to stand up against them let alone to defeat them? And they're correct. There is no earthly possibility. But what neither Israel nor these Gentile nations today understand is that this only appears to be a human geopolitical confrontation. Rather, it is just like it was in the Valley of Elah. This is a spiritual battle and jehovah is present. It's His war. It's His land. It's His people. You know, I don't know if another human David is going to appear or not. I don't think so. Rather, I think the deliverer of Israel, the offspring of David, the Son of God, the Messiah, will be the next David to slay this modern Goliath. When all the world's armies gathered in the valley of Jezreel, at the battlefield called Armageddon, and when the nations boast that their advanced weapons and overwhelming overwhelming numbers are going to make short work of tiny, intransigent Israel, Messiah will appear. And swiftly fell Goliath face down in submission to the Father. And in this way, Israel, all who are joined to her by faith, will be saved. May it be today.